How do you react when God raises your hopes? You can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and then He plunges you into hopeless darkness again. This is the question we want to answer from the life of Joseph today. Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he summarizes for us where we left off in Genesis 40 and leads us forward into Genesis 41. Right when it looked like he was going to be successful, things were really beginning to move, and he was successful in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and then she lied about him, and he ends up in prison. Last week, we saw Joseph's hopes begin to rise. The butler, the baker, had the destiny maker reveal a dream to them. It was a dream that outlined the next three days of their life. And right at the crucial point, when it looked like there was a ray of hope, the butler forgot Joseph. And so the writer of Genesis very skillfully creates this tremendous tension Right at the point when we seem that Joseph is going to rise up to power, he's going to escape from prison, everything comes crashing down. Now, if I were to ask you to give testimonies today, and I were to ask you, when do you pray the most? Almost all of you would say, I pray the most when I'm in prison, when I'm in the pit, when I'm in trouble. In other words, it seems like when the finances come crashing down, you don't have enough money to pay bills, what do you do? As a church family, what do we do? When the Lord has blessed us bountifully and the offering last week was $50,000, we wish, we tend to just ignore it. We don't tend to pray. You see, the tendency of all of our life is when there's a need, then we pray. When someone gets sick, then we all pray. When we have brokenness in our families, maybe one of our, one of our children has wandered away from the Lord, we get tremendously exercised about prayer and about the need to remember God. The lesson of the pit is that we need to remember God, we need to cry out to Him down in the pit, but today we change gears. Today we're going to focus on Joseph rising to power. We want to ask ourselves the question, when he's won the Super Bowl, when he just went to that elevated position as the CEO in his company, what does he do with God then? Turn to Genesis chapter 41. Pharaoh has a big problem as we begin Genesis 41. Pharaoh is probably the most powerful ruler of the world. He would be comparable to a President George Bush of our day. Egypt was the ascendant power, the supreme power of the ancient world. It says in verse 1 of chapter 41 that when two full years had passed, so Joseph has been languishing in jail for two full years of forgetfulness. It says that after two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came seven cows. We can identify that as Texans. Here we have, we're out in the ranch. We're down by a river. The Nile River is a little bit bigger than any river we have in Texas. But just imagine you're standing beside a river, and out of that river there come seven cows, sleek and fat. At the auction sale, these guys would pull, these gals would pull, top, top dollar, all right? They'd win blue ribbons. It says, and then they grazed among the reeds. So you picture this river scene, these seven fat cows come out of the river, and they're grazing there in the grass along the river. 
Then we have a second part of the dream. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile, and they stood beside those in the riverbank. And then the strange part of the dream takes place. The seven ugly cows that are gaunt eat up the seven sleek fat cows, and then Pharaoh woke up. That would wake you up. It's an unusual dream. Then he falls asleep again, and he has another dream. And this time we go out into the field, and they're kind of growing maize, and as the maize begin to develop, there's one group of maize that has seven very fat heads on it. And then seven very lean heads grow up, and once again the fat heads are shriveling, and the prosperity is devoured, and Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of this dream, and he's got a big problem. So what do you do? In ancient Egypt, when you had a trouble interpreting dreams, you would call in the professionals. You would call in the doctors of dreamology. And I've mentioned this to you several times. Dreams are very important in the book of Genesis because before Genesis through Revelation was completed, one of the ways that God from time to time would reveal himself to people would be with a dream. Remember Joseph. As a young man of 17, the Lord appeared to Joseph and gave him the dream of destiny, told him that one day he would rule over Egypt. Last week, we looked at the butler and the baker having dreams, and the Lord revealed the destiny of their life. Now we have the supreme ruler of the ancient world. God is not giving him a dream about Joseph's life. He's not giving him a dream about the butler and the baker's individual life. But now he's giving them a dream of the destiny of an entire nation. And Pharaoh's unbelievably troubled because it didn't take two and two, you know, to put it together. Not, it didn't take much to put it together. These dreams are foreboding. This is like a haunted dream. It's like a nightmare. So Pharaoh calls in his wise men, much as he will do later on in the book of Exodus, when Moses goes before Pharaoh, we have the conflict between Moses and these wise men. When you move to the book of Daniel, you have the same kind of thing going on in the court of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he needs someone to interpret it, and they search throughout the land. I want you to see how the Bible fits together. And this conflict between the God of heaven, who reveals the destiny of nations, and the human wisdom, the human wise men, the human dream interpreter, who really has the answer? Pharaoh goes to his wise men, look what it says. In the morning, verse 8, his mind was troubled. He sent for all the magicians, and these weren't guys that had tricks with their hands. These were men that were involved in the occult. They had some insight into the spiritual world, only on the wrong side. And they were the wise men that were supposedly to guide the Pharaoh. Pharaoh told them his dream. But no one could interpret them for him. We have a lot of college students back, and I think it's really important as we think about the university scene. It's very important to realize about human wisdom. Human wisdom can teach us how to build gigantic buildings. It can teach us how to be an engineer and build skyscrapers in downtown Dallas. Human wisdom can teach us a lot about biology. You can look at Drosophila flies, and you can learn all about their genetic development and learn a lot of things about reproduction and that kind of thing. Human knowledge can do incredible things. Modern technology and medicine can isolate viruses and can develop ways of curing them. It's very easy that when we start to be exposed to human wisdom, we can start to begin to worship at that shrine. The same thing was true in ancient Egypt. In ancient Egypt, 
They had their doctors of all the different fields. They were the wise men that were able to build the pyramids. Mathematicians are still trying to figure out how they developed the math. They could make such perfect triangles, such perfect pyramids. Engineers are still trying to figure out how they move those gigantic stones from across the Nile, up in the limestone cliffs, across and into the desert and building there beside the Nile. The Great Pyramid today, even 5,000 years after they were built, will still just strike you with awe when you look at them and you begin to climb on them. They're incredible monuments. In fact, some engineers today have said, well, maybe somebody from outer space revealed the plan. And in popular TV shows, sometimes they'll present people landing from outer space and instructing the ancient Egyptians on how they did it. I don't think that the Bible gives any warrant for an invasion from outer space, but the Bible tells us that from the day of Cain, the civilization of Cain, they learned how to do metallurgy, they learned how to build the Tower of Babel they knew how to build, and that engineering skill and that stress upon human ingenuity was very much a part of Egypt. But every one of us in this room need to ask ourselves, you see, when you're worshiping at the shrine of human wisdom and you're listening to Dr. So-and-so, it's very important to remember, human wisdom can't with accuracy tell you one thing about what will happen one second from now for sure. If I go to the doctors of Harvard University and I ask them, what is going to happen in the Middle East? Now they can make some educated guesses, but not one of us could count on their guess. You know why? Because humans don't control the history of nations. And Pharaoh has a dream that's about the history of a nation over a 14-year period. And God in heaven has graciously revealed to him what is going to happen. He goes to his human interpreters, and they don't have any answers. Now, right at that time, right at that time, the butler remembered. Look what happens in the next verse. It says, Then the chief cupbearer, the butler, said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Give this guy credit. This guy has the guts before the most powerful ruler of his day to say, King, I blew it. Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. You know, we should give, probably you've heard message after message on this chapter, but I doubt that many of us have ever remembered that the butler had the guts to say, I made a mistake. A lesson that all of us can learn, even from a secular man like this butler. If you blow it, if you forget a friend, when you remember, go back. Admit it. You see, this guy risked his neck. You see, the Pharaoh could have been reminded of what happened two years earlier. This guy got thrown in jail for what happened two years earlier. And what he has to do is go back and remind the Pharaoh, remember two years ago, you put me in jail? And when I was in jail, I met a young Hebrew man. And that young Hebrew was a fellow prisoner. And I told him my dream. And the baker told him his dream. And exactly what he said would come to pass came to pass. Now, all of that could have reminded Pharaoh of the shortcomings of this butler two years earlier. He might have ended up in jail again, but he didn't because God was in this. Now, I want to ask you a question. Joseph is in jail for two years. What would you think if you were Joseph 
when you sat there for 365 days and another 365 days and nothing happened. And you stayed in the same jail, eating the same lousy prison food, working with the same disgruntled kind of people. What would you have concluded about God's plan? It's what some of us in this room are concluding about God's plan for our life right now. You see, deep in our heart, it's very easy to begin to think, God's forgotten me. God doesn't care about me. Because everything's going wrong. My friends let me down. Financially, it's not working out. Physically, it's not working out. You know, we really touch some nerves when we talk about that. Joseph could have become a very bitter man, but he didn't. Because of the lesson we learned last week, that in the pits of life, Joseph remembered God was with him. And at just the right moment, at just the right time, at just the right instigation, the butler remembered. Now let's suppose the butler would have come gavelanding out of prison and would have said, Pharaoh, I want to tell you about there's a Hebrew. He's a sharp dream interpreter. Man, he can really do it. I had a dream and I dreamed this and this and this and Joseph gave me the interpretation. Man, you need to do something for this guy. You know what Pharaoh would have probably done? Big deal. So what? There's a Jewish kid in jail. Who cares? And would have gone right on with his state's business. The timing wasn't right. You see, the timing wasn't right till two years later because that's when Pharaoh had the dream and that was when he desperately needed the skill that Joseph had. And that was the moment in history where God had the right man, he had him trained right, he had taken him through all kinds of circumstances to get him ready, and there was a moment of grace when Joseph was ready. Now, some of you are discouraged. You know why? Because you think your life doesn't have any significance. Some of you are even born-again believers, and you're languishing. You feel like, Dave, I'm in prison. And you get despondent, you get depressed, because you say, man, life isn't working out. I can remember going through some of that with some of you that even have been trained for the ministry. Some of the guys that we have had that have been trained for the ministry, when they go to that sequence of trying to find where they fit into the body of Christ, it doesn't work out. They get turned by now by this and turned down by that and turned down by that. As I worked with guys and girls like that, that had given all this investment to being trained by the ministry, it used to make me very discouraged. And I used to say, God, what in the world are you doing? Men alive, this guy wants to be used by you. This girl really has tremendous potential. Why don't you open up an opportunity? And they would get discouraged. I've learned over the years, God has perfect timing. And he has a perfect character training school. At just the right time, he opens up the doors. And all the young people can count on this. And some of you that are getting up in your 70s, some of you even a little bit older than that, you see, the neat thing about what I'm teaching you is that for a believer, life is always jam-packed with meaning. You see, you never know when that moment will come when God says, this is what I got you ready for. This is what I really wanted you to do. And you got to go through the pits. You have to be in prison. You have to go through that character-developing time. You have to learn to walk with God in the negative so you're ready when he says, this is the time for exaltation. For some of us, that exaltation might not be from the New Testament perspective till we go home to be with the Lord. Some believers live their whole life in the pits. But it's not for naught. 
Because Jesus says that every one of us are going to have that moment of triumphant grace when we are exalted to the right hand of God with Christ. You see, that's the lesson of 41. Joseph could have cursed God. He could have forgotten God. He could have begun to worship Egyptian idols. But he didn't. Even though Yahweh wasn't coming through for him, it didn't look like it. He kept believing in Yahweh. He kept building on the promises of God. And at just the right moment, God worked the plan out. You've got to believe that for yourself. I've tried to share with you openly from my own life. As I look back over the course of my life, there's been those times when it looked like it was failure. It looked like it was defeat. And what I found out is that those were the moments of grace, just before the moments of grace. The summer that we started the Bible study when I came to Midlothian, the doctor told Mary, with Jonathan coming, we didn't know it was Jonathan then, but with the baby coming, don't go to New York. My dad says, Dave, I want you to come up and direct the camp up there again. And instead of directing the camp, I ended up working construction. In fact, I worked eight hours a day for a month and a half just running a jackhammer. I would come home like this, you know. My lips would quiver. I was covered with white limestone. They could have, if they poured water on me, I would have turned into concrete. You mix a little sand and stuff in it and the cement that they make over here. That was the pits. And I remember a thing. I remember coming home with white junk all over me. With, I couldn't hear anything for about three hours after I was finished. I'd say, Lord, what in the world are you doing? That was the summer that Mary and I began teaching in Tommy and Reva's home. That was the summer we got to know Ed and Corky Murray. And that was God's plan for us. You see what happens? That's the story of Joseph. And what it means that whatever you're doing, you never know that moment of grace. You never know what God's getting you ready for, which means it's okay. You can live today. Sufficient unto the day is the strength that God gives us. And the story of Joseph just proclaims to us this tremendous, tremendous hope. God's timing is all right. At just the right time, when Pharaoh desperately needs him, Joseph is remembered. The man of God steps forth, and look what he does. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph in verse 14, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When they had shaved him and changed his clothes, just love the practical touch of God's word. Can't you see him showering this guy down? You know, if you've ever been in, a, in, a, in an ancient prison, they didn't have some of the facilities they even have today. Man, this guy needs to be showered down. The Egyptians are very uptight about long beards. If you were a Jewish gene, you wouldn't make it in Egypt. I'm sorry. But you would make an excellent Israelite. The Israelites really liked those big, bushy beards and a lot of hair. But the Egyptians, that wasn't the end thing. In fact, the Egyptians would shave your head and everything else. So Kim would be a little bit better off there. No. <laughs> they get Joseph all fixed up like uh, the guy that played in The King and I, Yul Brenner. Joseph comes in before. Now look at this. Pharaoh said to Joseph. Now you've got to listen to this verse, verse 15. And I want you to think about how you would respond, Okay. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, how would you respond? You're before the most powerful ruler of the day. He looks at you and says, I can't find anyone that can do this, and I have heard that you can do it. How would you respond? This is just like the ball player before the Super Bowl. You know, they're running one of those, those, those 
weird, those interviews that we're all saying, get on with the game, and they bring in the star quarterback, and they're doing an interview. And what does he usually say? Ah, shucks. You know, hi, Mom. Yeah, I can do it. Tremendous confidence. You know, if I were Joseph about this point, this is what I would say. I would say, I'll tell you what, Pharaoh, I've got a special deal for you. I've been in prison for several years. Now, I can interpret dreams, but for a small fee. In other words, you let me out of jail, give me enough money to get home, and then we'll see what we can work out. Now, that's where a lot of us live. You see, there's a whole lot of us that deep in our heart, we've always got... You ever met people like that? Even pastors and evangelists and people like that. In fact, the whole Christian world has been rocked the last few years. Terrible blot on the kingdom of God because men of God were cunning. And they used the skill. You see, the skill that the Lord has given me, you see, I can use my skill not necessarily to teach you and open up the pages of this book. I can use a persuasive verbal skill to take you in directions that I want to go in, to manipulate you to meet needs that I want to have met. And the story of Joseph is a story that we desperately need, need to hear today. It's a story of a man in whom was no guile, no cunning, no things in it for him. Joseph could have asked Pharaoh for the whole kingdom because Pharaoh was so uptight and so troubled about this dream. But notice what Joseph says. Verse 16, I cannot do it. Do you ever say that? I want you to understand the modern ramification of this, okay? You've been working for a real powerful company, okay? Maybe you're working for Gifford Hill or TXI or maybe over at General Dynamics, and you've been languishing in the pits. I mean, you've been shoveling manure as far as the business world is concerned for the last 25 years. The president of the company calls you up, calls you in for a personal interview, and he says, I have heard, as I've been interacting around this company, I have heard that you have a special skill, and our company desperately needs the skill. I mean, there's going to be a multi-million dollar contract that can come in if you'll use your skill for us. How are you going to respond? You know what a lot of us think? You know what? If I get the power position, you see, if I get in that position of authority, then imagine the witness I can have for God. You see, what happens, you see, is as I'm in this interview with the president of my company, if I saw sell, in other words, when he says, you know, I've heard you're a little bit religious, that's, that's something I'd like to interact with you about. You go, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of the areas of my life, you know, I try in Texas to fit into the culture, and I do try to go to church quite regularly, and he says, oh, that's really nice. I'm really glad. In fact, that's very conducive for this kind of a job. But I've heard that you, it's a little bit more to you than that. You know, you're not just religious. You don't just go to church, but you're kind of into this Bible thing. So you say, yeah, you know, I, I think the Bible's a good book, and I do read it from time to time. You kind of soft sell it a little bit. Now, isn't that a good idea? I remember when I was trying to get into medical school and I go down to Syracuse University and the guy in an interview, you see you have a private interview for that. You sit in there with one of these doctors and he starts to ask you about your life. And I remember thinking in my mind, what do I really say? What do I write out on these application forms? You see, all of my life I had to write down on an application. What does your father do? You know what I had to write in the blank about what my father did? Evangelist. 
every interview I ever had. What in the world is this? Your dad's a what? And you're right into Billy Graham and born again. Remember the thing about, maybe I ought to change it. My dad is a, he's a youth worker. You see, all of you play those games. In fact, I guarantee that every single one of you in this room, as you move out into life, are going to face the opportunity to be a Joseph that goes public for Jesus. Or you can soft sell it. And I want to tell you what's going to decide that. You see, if you think that getting into medical school or getting that position in your company or getting that position in your school or wherever you work, if you think it depends upon probabilities, it depends upon buttering up the right people, it depends upon manipulating things, if you think it depends upon all that human ingenuity, you'll never go public for Jesus. And you'll always use it as the excuse, well, when I get that position of influence, then I'm going to go public. You never will. You never will. Joseph is a lowly prisoner. Even though he's shaved and cleaned up, he's still a prisoner. Pharaoh says, Joseph, I've heard you can interpret dreams. And what does he say? I can't do it. You know, every believer needs to learn to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. As soon as the believer thinks they can do it, they can't. And Pharaoh's heart went thud. You could hear it clunk, you know, just down in, the, it was down in the cavern of his soul. But then Joseph went on. Look what Joseph said. He said, I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. But Elohim, the creator God of Genesis chapter 1, can do it. Now Joseph is in the middle of a pagan court. He is in the middle of a culture that worships the Nile. They worship, they worship cobras. They worship crocodiles. They worship everything you can imagine. The one thing they don't worship is the Hebrew God of Israel. And what is this stupid Israelite boy that's been in prison all of his life do? He gets his one big chance, and the guy has to open his mouth and say, I can't do it, but there's a God in heaven. Have you ever noticed when ball players at the end of a World Series or at the end of a Super Bowl, you get a born-again, one of those born-againers every once in a while. That's really clear. You ever notice how the sportscasters react? Oh, well, tell us about the game. Well, I want to give all the praise and honor to Jesus. Well, it's time for a break right now. Or have you ever noticed how it comes out in the headlines? You ever notice how, it, how they write it up the next day? I've heard a guy give an absolutely clear testimony, and the sports writer the next day says he has some religious commitments. We even had that happen with, with, a, with writing up about a death. Trying to express what a person believed in their life. And even the paper changed it. They, were, they had some warm religious commitments. See, Joseph could have saw Petaluk, but he didn't. He said, there is a Lord God in Israel. And the thing I want to challenge every one of you to do is you need to decide this morning, and I need to decide in my life, who is the God of destiny? Now, you can all piously sit here and say, I really believe God's in control of my future. I really believe God controls what happens in my job. I believe all that stuff. You won't know whether you believe it until you're in an interview for medical school and you've been working your whole life and a Jewish doctor asks you, what is an evangelist? And you've got to respond. Or when you're writing out your applications and they say, what's the most important thing that ever happened in your life? 
You know what we desperately need? We need men and women, young people and older adults and children who are unashamed to say, I can't do it, but there's a Lord Jesus Christ that lives inside of me. And he didn't just live 2,000 years ago. He's He's alive in my life today. And I believe he can give me the skill. I think he can give me the ability to do what needs to be done. I think he'll help me and he'll guide me. Not people that are obnoxious about Jesus, but people that are genuinely sincere in the flow of everyday life about him. Pharaoh responds. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream I was standing, and Pharaoh goes right through the dreams again. Evidently, Pharaoh wasn't as smart as Nebuchadnezzar. Does anybody remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? Even though the dream interpreters, the dream doctors, weren't exactly accurate about their interpretation of dream, the kings found out that if they told him the dream, they could make up some cock and bull story that at least would pass for a dream interpretation. That's why when you get to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, he says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. Then we'll find out whether you really have connections upstairs. But Pharaoh's not that smart yet. This is still hundreds of years before that, and he recounts the dream. By the way, the reading of the Bible gives it twice. All the way through this story, we've been having pairs. The butler, the baker, two dreams. We've been having a lot of pairs. The reason that's so that in Hebrew, when you put two things together like that, it means you can count on this. You can count on it. It's going to happen. If God gives this dream twice, it's like an underline, writing it in capital letters. This is going to happen. Pharaoh goes through the dream that I just recounted to you, and then Joseph gives the interpretation. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are really one happening and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. That was the key to the dream. Any idiot could figure out what the meaning of the dream was when you made the connection, seven cows, seven years. And when I tell you that, you say, oh man, that would be easy to figure out. I could have figured that out before. No, you couldn't. Where would you make that connection? How did you know it wasn't talking about seven of the Egyptian gods? How do you know it wasn't talking about seven months? How do you know it wasn't talking about seven days? How do you know it wasn't talking about 7,000 years? You see, the key, the revelation from God that could only come from the Lord God that controls history was the seven cows, the seven years equal seven years. That was the insight from God. Joseph didn't get that because he was smart. He was smart. He was intelligent. But that was the key revelation. Just as in the dreams we studied last week that the, the three baskets represented three days. The three branches represented Three days. That was the insight that God gave to Joseph. Now look what Joseph says. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 30, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that will grow so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. And notice the emphasis, and God will do it. 
Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let the Pharaoh appoint him commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance, 20%. By the way, this should ring some bells. Our country is facing some similar kinds of decision-making. And see how the Bible lives. They should collect 20%. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that that country may not be ruined by the famine. And the plan seemed good to Pharaoh. Do you think the Bible is irrelevant? If you think the Bible is irrelevant, the Bible just talked to us about one of the most important things that you're all going to learn about in economics class, but some of you might not hear it clearly there. So listen to this now. In all of life, financially, I want to tell you something about economics. I want to tell you something about prosperity. God says that economics goes like this. You know what business people that observe finances notice about the reality of prosperity and times of poverty? is that it goes like this. Isn't that interesting? What did God say? We're going to have seven years of prosperity, and then we're going to have what? Seven years of famine. What do we do in times of prosperity? What do you do? What do you do when you just find out that you got a raise, and you're just going to make more money than you ever dreamed of doing? What do you do? You spend it. And during the years of prosperity, we all have a blast. Men alive, we're spending money. In fact, you know what? We spend more money than we make because everything's going to be prosperous. I went through a long time in my life. I remember having a conversation with my brother when inflation was high. My brother, when I remember I was in college back then, and my brother would say, Dave, I want to tell you the greatest thing about inflation. Man, you can go out and buy a color TV. Buy it now and be sure to buy it on time because you see, if you buy it on time now, in about three years, You'll pay it off with money that's not worth anything, and you'll be making a lot more money. Man, you make a lot of money by buying things on time. You know, there was a long time when our culture was actually, they would work like that. There's guys that made fortunes like that. You know where they are now? You know the real power money people in the United States, you know what they do? They just sit back. You know, there are people all over the United States that know a simple truth. Things go like this. And you know what they do? They do this simple thing. In the times of up, you know what they do? What do they do? They do exactly what Joseph told Egypt to do. You know, God's a gracious God. You know, God's a very, very bountiful, gracious God. And you know what he does? He blesses us. And what he does is he gives us prosperity. As you go through your life, you're going to ride some time when you're really prosperous. But you know what God is saying? I want you to look at me and be dependent upon me. I want you to learn to be wise. I want you to learn to save. Because you see, instead of bottoming out and going into crisis and catastrophe in the times of low, if you'll save in the times of high, you'll be able to ride out the times of low. Now, that sounds like a simple, simple truth, and every one of you know it. But there are some people sitting right in front of me that are not going to listen. One of the things that should happen in our hearts, as the Lord touches our lives spiritually, it should cause us to open our hands. We want to give. We want to give. But you know what? Some of you can't do that. You know why? 
Because everything's on time. As you look at all your finances, you are so far under the pile. You know why? Because you buy now and you're paying later all of your life. And what Joseph is saying, Joseph comes to all of us today as a wise man. He comes to Dave and Mary. He comes to all of us and he says, in the times of prosperity, save. And then you'll be able to weather the cycles and an unbelievable thing. You know what happened? Because of Joseph's wise plan, when the time of poverty came, Egypt was not only able to save themselves, but they were able to give to others. You know, it's one of the neatest things. You know, I know some believers that have what they call the caring account. You see, if I were to ask most of us, do we have a savings account? Do you have one? I know some believers that have caring accounts. You know what that is? They have their savings account and they're making wise plans in the time of prosperity to meet the needs of their family. But they also have a caring account. It's an account that they're putting away for times of special needs. So when they hear that a missionary needs a car, they've been saving for it. And they're able to reach in and say, Lord, what would you have me to do to help to meet this need? I know some believers, man, they are as high as a kite about that kind of thing. It's incredible the joy they have in their life because they're using the Joseph principle. In the time of prosperity, they say. You know, there's some teenagers in this room. I would challenge every teenager, every teenager, to get Sam over here to do the math for you. If you took $50 a month now at 14, and every single month, no matter what, you just put $50 into a CD, get Sam to tell you how much you have at 50 years of age. And almost all of us could do it, but few of us do. And the few that do are the ones that are in control. Because the debtor is the servant to the lender. Joseph exercised a wise plan. By the way, we're talking about governments here. We're talking about governments. You know, one of the things that really exercises me, and it leads to our next point here, and we'll be done. We're all a bunch of cynics. We are. As God's people, we get cynical. And what we do is some of our sharp, upcoming young people, we create that cynicism in them. It wasn't until I got all the way in graduate school that I felt that I had something to contribute in the big world system. You see, kids that are raised in a monastery, kids that are raised in a completely different environment, they develop an inferior mentality where I cannot contribute. And it wasn't until I sat in doctoral studies and there was a kid from Princeton University sitting next to me and I was competing head-to-head with a kid from Princeton University that the Lord said, Wurtzen, get off your butt and stop feeling like a little inferior kid and use your gift for the glory of God. And stop feeling second rate. It's nothing but stinking pride. And get out there and do your thing and let it rip for the glory of God. That's what Joseph did. I covet that for every kid in this room. I don't want believers that shrivel in their little environment. We need guys and girls that invade Austin for Jesus Christ. We need guys and girls that go into Dallas. Dallas is sick and tired of Sunday morning North Dallas religion. They're tired of it. 
What do we do in school board meetings? What do we do in school meetings? What do we do in the government? What I want you to see, I want every businessman and woman, I want every educator, I want you to realize we are in a totally pagan context in Genesis 41. And you say, well, Dave, there's two arenas. You need to be spiritual Sunday morning. You know, you just can't bring Jesus into this everyday life. That's what's the matter. Exactly what's the matter. And I'm not talking about being abusive. I'm not talking about shoving it down someone's throat. I'm talking about wise, skillful Josephs who say, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe in God. And Joseph is able to give Pharaoh the plan that can save all of Egypt because that's the final thing you need to realize. You see, Joseph wasn't just a revealer of dreams. You see, some of us as believers say, well, I know how it's all going to turn out. I know how the whole world's going to turn out. Jesus is going to come back. Man, Jesus is going to return, and everyone's going to live happily ever after that believes in him. So I don't have to do anything. I know everything's going to be okay. Uh Uh-uh. You see, Joseph could have said, there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of prosperity. Isn't that neat? We know what's going to happen. Do nothing. You know what Joseph did? He said, I know what's going to happen. And everyone of us in this room as believers ultimately know what's going to happen. You know what Joseph said? I have a plan. I have a plan. He said, what we need to do is for seven years of prosperity, we'll collect 20% stored away in barns and have it ready. And when the time of famine comes, we're going to have bread in our tummy. Brothers and sisters, I close with this. There's a world out there, right out there inside the doors, a world of Midlothian, a world of Waxahachie, a world of the United States, a world of Latin America, a world of Eastern Europe that needs bread. There is a tremendous famine in the land. It's not a physical famine, though in many parts of the world it is, a literal physical famine. But the greatest famine in the world today is the bread of life. And I want to challenge, you know what we need? We need some Josephs. We need some Josephs that say, I have a plan. One of the most exciting things that I did in seminary, you know, Ed and Corky Murray have been in Austria now for years. You see, there were many years we couldn't really tell you what it was about, but I want to tell you what it was about. There were five couples in seminary who started to pray for Eastern Europe when it was completely closed. And you know what they dreamed? They dreamed of a plan. They dreamed of being able to go back and developing a strategy to try to reach Eastern Europe with the gospel of Christ. They came up with plans of how they could go behind the Iron Curtain and train leaders in biblical studies and give them a taste of Dallas Seminary behind the Iron Curtain and give them the same insight into God's Word. And those five couples dreamed those dreams and they made the investment. And you were all a part of that. And now the Iron Curtain has come crashing down. And you know what? All over Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Ed and Corky specifically worked in East Germany. There are key believers ready, ready to go with the gospel of Christ. What I'm saying is I believe there's some, there's some church family here. You know what? I'm an effective teacher. That's my gift in the family of God. I try to do just about everything else in the family of God, and I can't do it. And Mary tries to fill in the other half, and she can't do it either. 
You know, one of the greatest paralyzing factors in this church family is we communicate. Just sit there and watch. We'll sing for you. We'll play the piano for you. We will teach for you. We will pray for you. Mary will even plan for you. And you know what happens? We paralyze you. We are right at the limit of what we can do. In fact, we're doing too much. You know what we really need? We need you. We need you. The Marines needs a few good men. Jesus Christ wants committed men and women. Joseph's with a plan. What are you going to do about it? What are you involved in in feeding the bread of life? What's your gift? What's in your hands? Some of you are administrators. Some of you are gifted in evangelists. Some of you are gifted children's workers. It can begin to happen as we all use our skills. Joseph had a plan. Let's dream the dreams. Let's believe that God can do things that we can't even imagine.